0: a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey folks, the Other People Podcast is a free program. All episodes of this show are available for free. They're offered freely, more than 500 and counting. If you would like to support this show, you can do so at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. That's patreon.com slash other PPL pod. All right. Thanks.
1: You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common.
0: Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done.
1: I think it's really beautiful. It what a struggle, you know? It was incredible, you know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. On
0: the and now time. here's your host, yeah. Brad Listy. Just one person yeah. just one time. Hey, everybody, how's it going? Right. Welcome to the right. Other People Podcast. I'm Brad Listy, Back again. I'm here with another episode. I'm in Los Angeles. Thank you for tuning in. I have Michelle Dean on the program. She has a new book out from Grove Press. It is called Sharp, The Women Who Made an Art of Having an Opinion. It's one of these uh, hybrid works of literature that I like so much. It combines cultural history with biography, with literary criticism. It profiles the lives and work of ten women of note, including Dorothy Parker, Joan Didion, Nora Ephron, Renata Adler, Hannah Arendt, Susan Sontag, Pauline Kael, and more. So Michelle Dean coming up in just a second. We had a great talk. I do want to share a, a brief story. From my day, it's been bothering me a little bit, and it's something that happens to me with some degree of frequency in my life here in Los Angeles. So I was out walking my dog, Twiggy. It's like our midday walk. I've been talking about walking my dog on this show a lot of frequency lately. It feels like I have a very regimented life. I, I do. Here's what I do. I work in my garage. I chase my kids. I walk my dog. That's it. I exercise. I sleep. That's it. So I'm out walking Twiggy and, uh, I'm, you know, sort of in my lost in my thoughts, whatever I'm doing. I'm not, you know, I'm kind of relaxing, taking a walk, taking a stroll, And up ahead, I noticed that there's a woman walking towards me. She's probably about 25 feet away. And she's in like exercise clothes, like the de facto uniform of everybody in Los Angeles. She's got like a t-shirt on and leggings. I noticed that. And then most of all, what I noticed is that she put her hand on her stomach. I think it was her left hand. She brought it to her stomach, not pregnant, not visibly showing. Nothing super unusual about it, but I did notice it. she put her hand on her stomach and then suddenly she was passing right by, you know, right by me. And as this happened, I looked up and realized, oh, I know that person. I know her like socially, the kind of way in, in the way that, you know, other adults, especially when you have kids. This is somebody that I've seen at like my daughter's basketball games or in the lineup at school drop off or at a kid birthday party of some sort, you see other parents with some degree of frequency if they travel in those circles with you. And you'll make small talk with them. You'll have a conversation. It'll probably last between seven and 15 minutes. Nothing much will get solved in the course of that conversation, but it's friendly enough banter. You know them. Now, in the case of this particular woman, I could not remember her name at the time. And up until just a few minutes ago, I could not remember her name and it was bothering me. And then suddenly it returned to me I am not going to share her name on this program for fear that it would somehow get back to her. Not that it would, but I'm a little paranoid. So, and it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter who she is. This phenomenon that I'm about to describe to you or that I'm in the process of describing to you has happened to me. I would say over the past couple of years between, I don't know, five and 10 times where I'm out in public, usually on foot and I pass somebody and I know them and I know that I know them and I know that they know me. And my face might, uh, you know, brighten as I recognize them. And they walk right past me like they don't even see me. And so that's what happened today. By the time I realized it was her, she was pretty much already past me. I guess I could have said hello, but that would have required me turning around, kind of chasing her down. It was just one of those things where by the time I, I kind of missed my shot, and then I was already thinking about the fact that she hadn't said hello. And I guess, you know, I, I could have said hello, but I didn't. And I honestly didn't even realize it was her until she was already passed. The reason that I was a little rankled by it, or at least uh, disturbed by it in this quiet way, is that uh, she put her hand on her stomach. And in my memory, for some reason, I feel this intuitive sense that She put her hands on, you know, when she put her hand on her stomach, that was her recognizing me (laughs) as if this is some sort of international symbol for like, I recognize you. I sort of know you. We've talked once or twice. I don't want to make small talk with you. I'm going to pretend like I don't see you. That's what putting your hand on your stomach means. That's how you let somebody know. And to be honest with you, I don't like small talk. You guys know that I don't want to make small talk. I don't want to sit around and chit chat. But I do believe in saying hello to people that you know if you pass within three feet of them on the street. And the other thing to point out is that this was not a crowded sidewalk. It was basically just the two of us in broad daylight. She put her hand on her stomach. I think she saw me. I think she knew it was me. I think she put her hand on her stomach. She was like, no, it's not happening. She just kept her eyes straight ahead. She had sunglasses on. She had uh, plausible deniability. She could say, listen, I didn't realize it was you. If it ever comes back, she could be like, I had no idea. And this is not the first time that this has happened. I tell my wife about this. I'm like, I, I will, I will go inside this evening and I will say, uh, honey, it happened again. Passed by somebody from the uh, school circuit. I know this person. I've talked to this person. They act like they didn't even see me. Is there something about me that, uh, engenders this treatment? Do I give off a weird signal? Do people feel weirdly about me? Or maybe she was just lost in her head. Maybe she really didn't see me. Or maybe she's just socially awkward. Maybe she despises small talk with an intensity that surpasses mine. I don't know. I do feel like putting your hand on your stomach should become the international symbol for, I I know you, I don't mean any hard feelings, I just don't want to talk right now. Going to keep moving. Just going to put my hand on my stomach. <laughs> anyway. Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long awaited craft book by Steve Almond My guest is Michelle Dean. She has a new book out. It's called Sharp, Ten Women. Or no, The Women Who Made an Art of Having an Opinion. It's out from Grove Press. It's called Sharp. I had such a good time with Michelle. I'm very pleased to get to share this conversation with you. Here she is, folks. This is Michelle Dean.
1: I'm sort of half Québécois. My mother's family, they're like real linguistic mutts. It's hard to explain. Like her sister lives as a Francophone. She lives as an Anglophone. Like um, my grandparents, my grandmother spoke French her whole life. My grandfather, my grandfather's name was Wheatley Parsons, which is not the most French Canadian name ever. I was going to say. Yeah. um, And, but he spoke French too. That happens in Quebec. There's a lot of like um, linguistic mixing and I'm the product of that. Like my cousins live as Francophones too on that side of the family. Um, And I have spoken in english and well since i left montreal i left montreal in um 2005
0: okay could you write a book in french like is your (laughs) is your speaking like super fluent but your writing is better in english
1: my speaking is super fluent however when you don't speak a language like every day you miss out on idioms you just do Right. that's what that's what my experience in French is so like my accent is pretty good it's gotten rustier since I left but like my accent was always great um and people would often like have a short conversation with me and not necessarily detect that I was anglophone um but then if they tried to have a longer conversation with me they'd say something I just wasn't familiar with or like there are pop culture touchstones within Quebec that I just didn't know because I live mostly as an anglophone got it um but uh but yeah like I I spoke it very fluently and I can write in it and it was, so for example too I I have a lot of degree. I have a very strange career. I have a law degree and my law degree was done partly in French, right? Like you, we had to read French texts and interpret French legislation and, and read French cases. So, and I was able to do all of that without a problem. And
0: do you come from a literary family?
1: No, <laughs> I mean, I come from a reading family. Um, but I just wouldn't call them literary in the, in the traditional sense. I mean, there was a lot of like paperback thrillers. Uh, my family is very devoted to LM Montgomery, um, which is a very Canadian thing. Um, but yeah, typically, um, my parents are big readers, but mostly of, yeah, like, um, paperback fiction, like mass market paperbacks. My dad has read everything I think Stephen King ever wrote. Um, and I, I sort of, I just read really early and that just meant that I was also like pretty omnivoracious from the time I was young. Um, but my parents, um, you know, they're still not big readers. Like they read some. Um, but it's not... It was not, like, something I was born into, exactly.
0: Well, and I was reading about you, and, like, you didn't come to writing... Like, I don't, you weren't one of these people who, like, at age 15 was like, I'm yeah. doing this. Yeah. Right? You, like, you had this law career. Yeah. And you sort of kind of fell into it.
1: Yeah, that's how I always describe it, which is maybe, like, being a little bit coy. Um, but, uh, but, yeah, I... Um, I felt like I didn't have the self confidence. It certainly occurred to me when I was fifteen that I wanted to be a writer. Um, I did not know anybody who made their living as a writer. Um, who I still barely that. do. Yeah, I've I, know, to, I know, talking
0: five hundred of these people. I know,
1: or but considered it their vocation, right? Like even if even if it wasn't what they were doing for money. I didn't know anybody like that. Um, right. I didn't even know anybody like that in university, right? Um, we, I knew literature professors, um, but none of the ones I even had wrote novels, right? Like um, it was just it was it was. Uh, an activity that other people did. Right. Um, and I, I couldn't figure out how to do it. And I have like certain internal confidence problems. And so um, do
0: I, I want to talk about that, but <laughs> yeah. we're good, Cause you seem to have surmounted yours better than I,
1: uh, sort of, um, it, but yeah, well, yeah, we, that's a whole other subject, but, um, but yeah, so I didn't, I didn't know how to go about becoming a writer. Um, and like I did a degree in like 20th century history. Um, cause McGill where I went, like lets you specialize that much. And, um, mostly did cultural history and read a lot more stuff that I hadn't sort of picked up in my childhood. A lot of Yates actually. That's sort funny.
0: of like a precursor for your book though, yeah, this, this, yeah. Uh, this course of study.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And um, well, it's funny because it was a precursor for my book because I always found actually English lit classes, not my cup of tea like the main reason I, did, I wasn't an english major was i can't scan poems for shit <laughs> like it's just it's not a power i possess i know when something sounds right but like i cannot i cannot describe the parts of speech and error or, and the the beats of it i just can't do it um and so i like would do really badly in those classes and just be like i, I don't think i can do this but um and i also found um I don't really like talking about literature in a disembodied way um it sometimes makes me feel like yeah like i'm a coarse like anti-sophisticate because of course a lot of artists like really dislike talking about literature in context right like either in context of the writer's life or in context of the history that it's that produced it or anything
0: see that's my show yeah (laughs) it is though
1: yeah no i know well but it's interesting because there's this dogma out there right that you shouldn't ask writers like or novelists personal questions like you can see that coming up a a lot lately like they resent being asked it i get it and i do think that people Are intrusive. I think they're worse with memoirists than than novelists. Even though it seems to me like I see novelists complain about it more. But um, but yeah, like I I I don't get it. Like like fundamentally, intellectually, I think literature is produced in a context, right? Like, and I'm interested in that context even as I'm reading it and I'm thinking about like why this comes.
0: Okay, I want to stop you here just because I was having a conversation yesterday about auto fiction uh-huh. and how much I like it uh-huh. and how no matter what I'm reading, uh, if I'm like, whatever fiction I'm reading, I'm always reading it uh, thinking like, well, what's going on with the writer? Like what yeah. part of this is real? Right. Uh, like where, like what was going on in their life that, what was the context that produced this? Even if it is like a complete invention, yeah. which with most of the books that I wind up gravitating towards, it usually isn't. Right. And like, whoa, well, what is that? tendency i guess it's just a matter of personal taste or is that some like failure of my imagination that i'm constantly (laughs) (laughs) viewing through things through the lens of reality and like that's where i'm most interested and so i think that's part of the reason why i do this show where it's like i want to sit down with that person and like find out what was going you know what was going on in their life or what's going on with them
1: yeah yeah i mean um i also yeah i think It's the most interesting thing to me about, about this, um, about this enterprise literature is how you get it done in the real world. Um, and you know, I do like, I, I I do understand the the argument of like a new critic, and it does feel like there's like a, a newer, like a new sort of new critical backlash coming to coming to us now where people want people to just only talk about literature, like stick to the text. Don't talk about anything else that's going on. Don't talk about the context. Um, and i like i i understand um both the the arguments for and against all things i guess like i am um i'm a messy person i'm a pluralist like i want to see all the information i don't really want i i don't really want there to be like these strong rules about like what you can and can't say or Me how too. you can and can't react yeah um and um and yeah, and so because of that, like for me, it's always interesting to have more rather than less information.
0: Well, and, and I'm also like a fully supportive of any author out there who doesn't want to talk. Yeah. Like just don't do the show. Don't go don't, yeah, exactly. don't do don't do press. I know. Let I know. Let your let your work exist out there, you know, but it's like the hard part is that you you want people to read it, you want your readership, you got to engage with some of this.
1: I know. I know. And people want to know about you, and I think like um, well, it's particularly the autofiction, although I don't usually hear this from autofictionists. The people I hear it from are, are I would say, like literary novelists who say that like readers are are mistaking the protagonists for them. Um, and, you know, I don't doubt that there are like some readers out there, but I guess I think of it as like a more flexible thing. One of my first jobs as a journalist was working as a research assistant. On the David Foster Wallace biography that was yeah I
0: talked to D T Max for the show
1: yeah yeah so I worked for Dan I fact checked the book and um, his name's Dan he, well, he also goes by Dan yeah
0: oh, okay yeah, I didn't know yeah. I just I think I called him D T
1: yeah I think that works too right yeah. like I think he does both um and uh, and so I worked for him for for a while on that book and. Um, And yeah, and it was surprising to me, or it really qualified for me, the relationship between a person's life and fiction, because I would have assumed that somebody who is as big a deal as David Foster Wallace wasn't incorporating everything from his life, but he was incorporating a lot of it. He was, however, like refashioning it and remolding it, but that didn't mean that it didn't contain this kernel of reality that was worth acknowledging. Right. Right. Um, Like, in particular, this has come back up because of Leslie Jameson's book, but like... um,
0: what the one about uh, addiction?
1: Yeah, so much of David Foster Wallace's work is about AA. Like, even the philosophy of something, and some people don't like this as water. I like this as water, but like that speech, the philosophy of that speech is very AA inflected.
0: Is that the that's like the Kenyan college? Yeah, like, yeah, that's uh, the one. Two, commencement like, two fish speech swimming along. Right.
1: Yeah. Um. I mean, that is very inflected by AA thinking. Um. And uh. And you know. And and. The, most of david 's best work is inflicted by that and 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 it 's good to know that like i don 't know it 's interesting to know that yeah and i don't i I get like the all the concerns about privacy, and I work in biography like quite a lot um and I understand what people um, are concerned about. I think a really good biographer is not a kitchen sink biographer who just thinks like, well, I uncovered this fact, so I should publish it, right? A good biographer has like an idea of who a person is, that they're advancing and they're organizing their evidence along that. The problem that you get is these biographers who are like, my job is to say, I love this person or I don't love this person, which is like a dichotomy I don't even understand, right? It's not the job
0: of a biographer.
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: And and so, and you did some of that in your book. I mean, your book is a history, it's a biography. And I, like, I'm thinking about the way you would tackle such an ambitious project where you have 10 subjects. <laughs> yeah. That was you're...
1: basically naivete, but yeah.
0: Yeah. And you're doing all this <laughs> research and I want to talk to you about research, which I think is, uh, tied to the uh, assistantship you had with DT Max. Like I'm sure you learned a little bit about how to do that kind of research. Yeah. Right?
1: Yeah. I've also just always, so being a lawyer to a certain extent is just assimilating a large amount of information. Right. Um, and then formulating it into an argument.
0: Yeah. Cause right. I, I always think like when I'm, when I'm reading a book like yours, or I'm reading some big biography, or uh, um, a smaller biography, like yeah. the one of, of Wallace, which right, is right. which is not a knock, by the way. Yeah, no, no, I, no it was, sort of, it's elegant. Yeah, yeah, I sort of appreciate it when somebody's yeah. able to distill, you know. Yeah. But uh, there's still a, an extraordinary amount of research that goes into it. Mm-hmm. Like you go to the library and you're in the stacks, and it's like even that can seem overwhelming to me. Like, yeah. oh shit, you got to look through their papers. Like you're just in there. It's yeah. just it's just like the gritty work of like a private detective, it's it's un, it's unsexy, right?
1: <laughs> it is and it isn't. I mean, there is something very romantic about being in an archive and finding the letter that like really enchants you. Like, there's a letter in my book, and I'm eternally grateful to Philip Roth for this that he granted me permission to quote it. I wanted to ask you about yeah, this. Yeah. So,
0: tell us about this letter. Philip Roth wrote this letter to Susan Sontag, Susan Sontag. and
1: it was in the early 1960s when he was like famous, but he was not, you know the great American novelist in the way he is now. He was new, and uh, he did uh, – a New York Magazine writer, now forgotten, whose name I also forget, n- not, not a pr- prominent writer, came to profile him for New York. And um, and I guess, like, Roth was, like, riffing or something, and he, he, he was saying – ta- he started talking about Susan, and he said, Susan Sontag, you know, Susie, Susan, Susie Q., and he was quoted as calling her Susie Q in the in the subsequent oh, article. God. And evidently when he read the article, he was like, Oh no. <laughs> like, um, and he wrote to her just saying, like, hey, first of all, I was like kind of joking, but like but you know, I, I really I completely respect your work. I don't mean to denigrate you in any way. This is the fault of the journalist. And I just thought it was interesting because like our picture of Philip Roth is that he would never have been intimidated by anybody or or like, um, and I don't know that the letter shows intimidation, but there's something about it that's definitely apologetic, right? That's like, I'm sorry that this got printed in this way. And I want you to know how much I respect you. And that's a fascinating thing to see from Philip Roth.
0: Yeah, well, I'm just like, well, he's got a conscience.
1: He does have a conscience. And, you know, I don't know how many women he has actually issued apologies to in his life, right? You know, and it's, it's, um, it tells you something about, because this was Susan before she was like a very big deal either, right? Like she was big enough. She didn't notes on camp or whatever, but it, she wasn't like, it's hard to explain this to people, especially writers sometimes, because we tend to receive, um, our heroes as like completely fully fledged, you know, geniuses. Um, and in, in the book and also just in my biographical experience, that doesn't happen very often. Like it does happen, but it's not, it's usually the case that it takes a while for somebody to work up to it. And they're often not as famous at the beginning as like people think they must've been There's a tendency in Susan's case to mythologize notes on camp. It took a little bit more than that for her to become the figure than that she became. Well, and
0: I think postmortem too. a lot of times people like that's when the mythology really takes root yeah, you know? it does. And, and you start to, if that's happening, then I think it's the tendency to imagine that they were this huge, bright galactic shining star in life. Is strong, but it's
1: yeah, and it's hard because literary reputation isn't always like commensurate with what happened to you in your life. The person that I actually think about this a lot is Virginia Woolf, who was famous enough in her own time, but actually like completely fell off the radar. And the main reason that she's now Virginia Woolf um, is uh, is that she was revived in the seventies by a bunch of feminist academics.
0: Well, I mean, and you could say the same about, I'm thinking of Escott Fitzgerald. He yeah. sort of like died drunk and broke and forgotten, or he thought and around he was...
1: the same time, his reputation was revived. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. that can happen. Yeah. Although that was interesting because his reputation was revived by a novelist, right? Like it was Bud Schilberg. Anyway. Um, it, it's interesting how his, how his came back, but yeah, like, I had
0: forgotten who it was or yeah, how it yeah. happens, but it, it it's, it's an interesting point that somebody's entire body of work and their historical, their fate in history, at least for some period of time, can depend upon the actions of a single human being yeah, I know. of influence. of you know. Somebody
1: who, well, yeah, who's, who, who really goes out and like, just spends the time like being like, this is worth reading. This is worth reading. You have to read this. Mm. Um, yeah. And it's interesting. Um, I like, yeah, it, it's funny because, um, Sometimes I think um, people have misread the, the book that I wrote as saying, like, these are the 10 people who are, like, the most important. Right. Um, and it was kind of like, these are the 10 people who are the most publicly prominent. I mean, Mary McCarthy has had something of a revival, mostly because the group showed up on Mad Men. Um, and people were like, oh, what's Betty reading? She's reading it in the bath at one point. And, um, and she enjoyed a sort of revival recently. I mean, that's not even her best book. Um, and I think most people don't really know who she is except for her fight with Lillian Hellman. You know every woman that woman says the word that woman says the lie, um, except including the end and the butt. But but, um, but it's it's you know some of Mary's stuff is so great like the the company she keeps is so much with that, with all due respect to the writer of Cat Person like <laughs> the, the the man in the Brooks Brothers suit is Cat Person um, told in a much more economical. Way about like an ambivalent sexual encounter that a young woman has with an older man, hmm. right? Like it's exactly the same story.
0: Do you think that do you think that it was uh, like? Intentional? I don't know if she
1: read it or not, right? Um, because I so the, it's funny. Cat person doesn't have the same acid take. That Mary does just because like, I don't know, it's kind of gone out of style to have an acid take most of the time.
0: I think it might, he might, might be due for a revival. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Um, cause it's more, it's more diffuse now and I can understand that that's an interesting style experiment. Like it's an interesting style experiment to like not be clear what the tone is sometimes. Um, it's just not my preference. Like I do like tighter, um, stuff And, uh, but yeah, I wanted everybody to go out and buy the company she keeps, which is a whole book about what it's like to be a young woman in like trying to make your way in New York and having shitty jobs. It's basically girls before girls.
0: Well, I was going to, and also, uh, I want to say the group, wasn't that like a precursor or some sort of inspiration for sex in the city?
1: Yeah. I mean, they're all, so that genre actually goes back a long time, even before Mary, like this idea of young women moving to the city and making a life for this themselves. There were these two sisters, um, my sister Eileen, um, which later became the musical Wonderful Town, um, is it, it, the, the, these. There were these two sisters who were like the iconic girls in like the twenties and thirties and forties, and, and that became like the story that everybody began to tell about like what it was to become a woman writer.
0: Well, it's it's interesting. Multiple figures in your book. Uh, you know, there's, there's a lot of stories of women going to the city and trying to make it in the city. And then there's also a tradition of writing essays about leaving the city. (laughs) I'm thinking of Joan Didion, like leaving New York and like, you know, her idealized version of New York and how she kind of confused reality with fantasy and all that kind of stuff. And that's its own genre too. So it's like coming to the city and then getting the hell out.
1: (laughs) Although she went back, right? Like, so, so like, um, you know, uh, and I, I think you know I haven't read that. I've been meaning to read John Dunn's like book because I didn't really get into Didion's screenwriting career in the in the in the book. But like I've been reading, meaning to read John Dunn's book about about what their life in Hollywood was like. Um, but yeah, it. Uh, I think they were they had like a tough time out here somehow and wanted to go back and
0: not that tough.
1: Not that tough. It's true. It's true. <laughs> Although I don't know. Like um, there's a lot about Didion we don't know for all that she wrote about herself.
0: Yeah. Did right. you see the documentary on Netflix?
1: I did. I did. I didn't think it really, like, revealed a ton that I, I didn't already know. Um, I mean, you, you know, I, I actually, I, of course, like everyone else, I love the moment where she says, well, it was gold, <laughs> um, which which did seem like a window opening what was?
0: Wait, I'm trying to remember. She was
1: talking about reporting some dreamers, or, or not some dreamers, the golden dream, um, uh, slouching towards Beth- Bethlehem in, okay. in Hyde Ashbury and oh, right. seeing, like, you know, suffering. And, and somebody says to her, like, like, and what did you think?
0: And she said, I think it was cool. I yeah, was yeah, cool. yeah.
1: When you saw it, like, um, and I think that was like a small reveal of who she really is, mm-hmm. um, a small good reveal, like, um, but yeah, um, I think it, it's tough. She doesn't she doesn't want people to know necessarily. Like, she's actually written like two fairly opaque memoirs about her life, plus like any number of personal essays. She doesn't really want people to know.
0: Yeah, but, you know, like the memoirs are, um, I mean, you think they're opaque. I'm just trying to, I'm also thinking like they also cover like very specific like incidences in her life and pe- small periods of her life. It's not some sort of sweeping thing.
1: They cover emotional valences, right? Like, and so, but you're often missing a lot of the context about the emotional valence, right? Like, um, you come out of blue night still not knowing exactly what happened
0: yeah that's got to be a tough book to write
1: yeah no no i i and i i say this not as criticism i'm only just saying like yeah it is sort of opaque. like in spite of the fact that people are like yeah it's tough it's it's self-revealing uh you know she found a way to do it differently right like where right. it wasn't like a confessional memoir about how awful this experience had
0: been right yeah well i want to before i forget and because i mentioned this already or earlier in the conversation i want to talk to you a bit more about uh, the conception of your book and how you structured it, yeah. how you like tackle a project <laughs> like this, like you pick these ten women mm-hmm. who were the most publicly prominent. Is that an objective factor? Is that like just kind of around? I mean, yeah, pretty th- close to true, but that's pretty close to true. Yeah. Okay. Who, and...
1: who at one time or another, uh, got into some kind of conflict about being sharp? Um...
0: Yeah, because the title of the book is it's sort of a pejorative. Yeah. it's like a compliment that carries with it yeah. a kind of. Uh, there's like an underbelly of uh, criticism.
1: Yeah, it. of destructiveness, like a tailwind of destructiveness is usually what I say, right? Like that there's this idea that it's me, that they're particularly mean or pointed or cutting or, you know, not to extend the metaphor too far, but th- those are the things that people are picturing when they think of this. Like they they think these women are dangerous in one way or another, which is sort of an interesting fantasy that people have about women who are smart.
0: So you have 10 women, and I can can imagine as you're conceiving of this, you're like, okay, these are the 10. I'm going to do like a biography slash history uh like cultural history for each one Mm -hmm. but then there's this interstitial material where you found out in research i would imagine that their lives had intersected like how much of that did you know before you got into it and how much of it came to you as like oh my god i had no idea like these people actually interacted or had like had a squabble or wanted to kill each other (laughs) i
1: did know that so like the book came together sort of in a weird roundabout way but um you know, I, so for example, I think one of the more direct seeds of it was um, a few years before Nora Efron died, somebody gave me her book called Crazy Salad. Um, and until then, being Canadian, um, and and whatever which is my get out of jail free free card in the state um i didn't i had not been aware that she wrote any journalism like i I, it just goes to show you that like literary education can be nationally bound and that i literally had no idea that she had done that
0: well i think popular a lot of popular conception with nora is that she's a film director of romantic comedies that's
1: what i thought of uh, yeah and frankly and middling romantic comedies and so and so i just it had never occurred to me that she would have had this whole other life and when i read it um I thought, this is really good. Um, Far better than I thought, and not just far better than I thought it would be, but actually brilliant. And then that made me wonder, like, what else I was missing out on because of this. And so I started to, like, trace some genealogies. And of course, she had both written about knowing Dorothy Parker as a child, and then she had also written about, she'd written a play about Mary McCarthy, because she was obsessed with Mary McCarthy. Um, so that led me outwards and then those tentacles led to other places. Right. Um, and so it came together a little bit like that. So I did know about the connections. Um, and in fact, in order to sell the book, I had to write a fairly, um, comprehensive outline at the beginning explaining what all the connections were. Um, because, uh, otherwise like the book looked like a collection of biographical essays, which was not what I wanted to do. I wanted to demonstrate some, some obvious points of connection, Um, so yeah, so, so yeah, so I had to like put it together that way and I decided to tell it mostly chronologically, but like rippling back. Um, whenever I started a new person, because there was one, per- at one point I drafted the book where I would just move exactly chronologically through time and it was impossible to read. Like it just was like too. you needed to get a sense of these people to, in order to want to follow them to the end. So eventually it became this thing that kind of, and it, it's funny, some of the reviews have called it like a collection. It's not a collection, right? Um, it's, it's, uh, a kind of history, um, about, um, yeah, about this, about the sort of tone and this position that these women writers occupied, because I was interested in the position of being sort of in a fairly sexist world. Um, and I said, I don't know why I qualified. I was going to say,
0: I was just going to say that. that uh, pretty... In a sexist
1: world, um, I, I, I was interested in this position of being anointed as an exceptional woman which, um, is both a compliment and kind of an insult to Right. Like, um, because it's like, yeah, I'm just going to separate you Ed, from the pack of like your biology. Um, right. Uh, so I You've got an
0: outlier here.
1: Exactly. <laughs> and uh, like, it also like you're exceptional, but you're also a bigger target. Right. Like, so it's then, then a man in your similar position writing almost the exact same things would be. So I was interested in that position. Um, and, uh, and yeah, and so that was the thing that I was like trying to trace through the stuff. And there's tons of stuff that isn't in the book about these ten, 10, women. I was mostly focusing on like how they broke in and then the kind of big controversies that they got involved in.
0: Okay. So a couple of things that occur to me, like one is that, uh, and I, I, I kind of get this from doing this show and talking to, and knowing so many writers mm-hmm. over the, you know, over the years is that it really is kind of a small world yeah. in the end. There is so much overlap and so many people, you know, you're only yeah. like one or two degrees of separation from pretty much everybody in literature. It's right, right, like, right. like once you get to know like a small handful of people. And then the second thing that kind of haunts me when I consider, especially for women and minorities who are trying to do this, people who don't necessarily have the uh, the doors thrown wide open in the way that men do, like white men do, yeah. uh, particularly in the 20th century, but still today, yeah. is how many people will get forgotten? And how many people who are of merit, whose work just sort of like fades or yeah. never finds the audience that it deserves. And so the women that you're writing about, they did find their way there and they were anointed or whatever. Yeah. And I'm curious after writing this book and researching their lives and writing, like, did you find a common thread in terms of like why they were able to get through? Was it some was it like some serendipity and then like hard work or was there like somebody who championed them or you know what I'm saying? Like what was it that distinguished them or made them, um, you know, like gave them the opportunity to find a seat at the table.
1: It was mostly the tone, right? Like, um, they are all different writers, right? Um, and, but there is a certain acidity that under underlies what they're writing. And I, I sometimes hesitate to use that word because it sounds like I'm just reinforcing the destructive thing. But what I mean is that, um. Yeah, it tends to be very focused, right? Um, and but also like kind of ironic. There's usually like an an element of ironic distance involved in it. There's often like a note of amusement in here that people found infuriating. Um, okay, because okay, yeah.
0: Like there's something about good critics, yeah. and I'm gonna mm-hmm. I'm gonna conflate two things that you that might cause you to bristle, but like good tweeters as well. Yeah, that. They're, they're like masterful at getting a response. Yeah. And I guess like that's just good writing, but something about like sharp, you know, to use the yeah. the apt uh, term, like sharp takes or whatever, like yeah. some people are so good at that. Yeah. And I watch the way they will compose an op-ed mm-hmm. and, you know, it's like it seems on the surface maybe more cordial than it actually is. Or I didn't, I don't know. I'm not phrasing that right, but I guess I'm just trying to say like, people who wind up finding this big readership and getting that seat at the table have an unusually um, refined ability to get a reaction out of people.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's a little bit of fearlessness too because in general, um, I say this in the introduction, and I try to put it nicely, like they, these women were oppositional spirits, which meant that, which by which I mean that they, they were prepared to say things straight from their um, sort of apprehension of them. There are a lot of people who are very political in life, right? And I don't, I don't mean just writers, but I mean just people who are always like sort of thinking like, oh, how should I present this? Like, what should I do? Um, and I think there was a certain amount of directness going on here in, in a lot of this work where people were just saying, these women were just saying what they were apprehending. And that's apolitical. It's not apolitical, but like, you know, it's... Um, It's what I mean is it's not calculating in the same way of like, well, is this going to get a good reception or not? Right. Like, um and and because more than once in the book, something happens where somebody writes something and they think I'm just saying something and the world goes, what? Right. Like, what are you talking about? Like Eichmann in Jerusalem was one of those situations where I don't think that Hannah Arendt thought she was going to get like so much blowback. And, and journalist and the murderer is another one of those situations where like i don 't think that Janet Malcolm thought she was saying something so incredibly radical um, and they were clear insights, and it was like hard to um, live in a world after them that that meant that you you didn 't think about those those insights right um, but at the time, people are not going to congratulate you for for offering them this This was the general theme right um so yeah, a certain amount of fearlessness and maybe even, like, you could also call it obliviousness, right? I was going like, to say, yeah, they're yeah. so,
0: like, locked into the work. Yeah. And, uh, you know, like, one of the things uh, you've said is that there's sometimes, or there's often, like, a dissonance between the confidence on the page and the confidence in real life. Yeah. So you have somebody who, when you read them, they're like, wow, this person really knows their mind and what uh-huh. they think, and they don't give a shit. Yeah. And then you meet them in real life, and it's like, ah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's not quite there as much. And I, I relate to the latter rather than the former like i have a really hard time having confidence in my own opinions yeah uh, which i've talked about ad nauseum on this show like yeah. i can all i can do is doubt like everything everything's gray to me and so i'm sort of astonished and in awe of people who have that like boom like i know <laughs> and i see clearly like what, what is that?
1: Yeah, I don't know.
0: Because um, you kind of have that, right?
1: No, I think I look like I have it on the page, right? Like, um, and I don't really in person. Um, although I'm a little bit, I'm maybe, I think I sometimes come across even in person as having it and then go home and think, oh God, why did I say that? Um, I, you know, I think it's tricky, right? Um, I, I think when I was younger and again, didn't know any writers, um I assumed that they had some superhuman quality. And then I met them. <laughs> <laughs> right? um, and, and, and like, by and large, like, writers are socially awkward. Um, people who've been damaged by spending too much time inside. Um, and so, because even the gregarious ones, I think that's an accurate description of, right? Um, in that they...
0: You're talking to a man who's in athleisure wear in his garage. Yeah, (laughs)
1: I'm
0: fairly gregarious, but I, I, you know, I could easily just stay in here forever.
1: Exactly, and so, um, and so, there's always like a certain sort of um, coming into the social world and not being entirely comfortable uh, with it or of it, right? Because you're also always sort of watching. Things and, and interpreting them that way. Um, I mean, I think you know it's tricky to assume anything about anybody's confidence just from what they, they've written on the page. Um, it's, but it's also definitely the case that you can see that some writers um, managed to get over it better than others. That's right. I feel like I haven't gotten over it tremendously well. Like in, for example, um, my publisher would be like, don't say this. Um, th- of course there are things in the book that I don't like. Right. Like I, I, I think I didn't know this before I published a book, but this is the general feeling people oh, always, yeah. Ha- yeah. Like think that I, I wish I had done better or like, of course, as soon as it was sent off to print and I couldn't touch it, I was like, Oh God, you know what I should have done. Right. Um, and, um, and and i think in some ways the book is, the the book and um, all of my writing is somewhat weaker for my spending so much time agonizing about like whether something is good or not or whether i'm right about something or not if i just sort of held forth a little bit more it would be better um and so yeah so i'm always in this like kind of wrestling with it kind of situation because Yeah, I know I come across as confident on the page, but it takes a long, long time for me to get there.
0: And I feel like in writing this book and in studying the lives of these women, it's a way of trying to kind of reckon with that, right? Yeah, yeah, Because there's admiration. There's also a desire to like have a seat at the table. Yeah, yeah. And like that to me, uh, just speaking personally... Is also something I grapple with. Yeah. Like, what is that? Is that ego? Yeah. Like, I, maybe it's better to, like, not want a seat. Maybe it's better to just be, like, comfortable with obscurity. Yeah. And to be one of these people who's, like, I want a seat. <laughs> is that, like, somehow, like, a confession of, um, like I don't know like a character flaw, like I can worry that about that,
1: right, right. I mean, in my experience and my biographical travels, even the writers who say I don't care about this stuff really care about this stuff, right like um I, I think I think the longing to be heard is just maybe inherent to the nature of writing, and I think that the people who say that it does they don't have it are just lying, like well, I honestly think that <laughs>
0: okay, okay, but to, yeah. i I would agree, yeah, but there are, there are, there are gradations of this, yes. Like there's some people who like they burn mm-hmm. for a readership yes. and there are other people who might, you know, be great to have a readership, but like, it's not live or die. Mm-hmm. I think, you know what I'm saying? And then there's a, a a big, a broad spectrum. I think people who are like thumping the tables and like, I don't give a shit. Those people are full of it. Yeah, But it's not like everyone is, is, uh, thrumming with the same level of intensity and ambition.
1: No, if that's definitely true. Um, I don't know, I'm kind of suspicious of ambitious people most of the time. Um mm-hmm. uh in in or like nakedly ambitious people. I know that, that you know that the the tricky with gender because um nakedly ambitious women get demonized in a way that nakedly ambitious men do not, right? Um but I think even even when I try to like account for that in my calcu- in my personal calculations, I still come out on the other end with um ambition is good. Um it can be it can I feel like I've watched this happen to friends I won't name, but, like, you know, it can eat you alive, right? Like, if you want to be the voice of a generation, if you want to write the next great book on whatever subject, if you want to do all that stuff, that that is the thing that can actually, like, kill you, right? Um, is you kind of have to accept that, like, your efforts are always going to be not what you wanted. Because, like, for example, it took me two extra years to finish Sharp, and, and in retrospect, the only reason was... um, well, not the only reason. In retrospect, a major reason was that um, I had this perfect glimmering object of a book in my head. And, and, the, and the manuscript wasn't it. And, um, and I spent a lot of time being like, if I just waited longer, it'll come to me. It'll come to me. And then it just never came. right? Um, and, and I think, yeah. So the nakedly ambitious people, I always feel kind of bad for them too. Like even as they're kind of obnoxious jerks who are out, elbowing everybody out of the way. Because I always feel like your work's going to suffer from this. You're going to suffer from this. Um, yeah. I, my friend Carolina Veklaviak, who I think has been on the show. Yeah, a couple times. Yeah, yeah. Um, she said something to me, like, not too long ago that I, that I now have, like, on a sticky on my, on my, like, computer. And it's, like, the only thing you control is the writing. It's the only thing you control. Um, and um, and I have found that since I've started living by that rule, it's gotten a lot easier.
0: Yeah. Well, and I also, but see, I can also sometimes feel like the people who are nakedly ambitious and again, there's different ways, yeah, yeah. there's different ways of expressing this, Yeah. but sometimes people are like, yeah, I want that. Yeah. That like, to me, I'm like, well, maybe that's psychologically healthier than being <laughs> like, I'm not sure. Or like, you know, like people who are willing to just like, say it, like, I want to do this. I want to be a bestseller. I want to win this yeah. prize. It's like, wow, maybe that's like the psychologically healthier approach or Or maybe not. See, this is where I get into the gray zone. I just don't know. And I wish that I had some clarity on it. Like the ability to just be like, this is the way.
1: It's true. I mean, I guess, so I am not a bestseller. I have a lot of friends who are now. Um, I, I guess I won an award and I have a lot of friends who are award winners. You won a
0: national book critic circle award. I did award.
1: win a national book critic circle award. Um, and so, and I have to tell you, like my experience of it was somewhat ambivalent, right? Like, and like, not that I wasn't like honored or whatever to get the, the award, but the internal, the internal thought process was not like, yeah, I've finally gotten my due, right? <laughs> like, nor was that the experience, right? Like, it's not like the New Yorker came calling. So like, it was just, you know. It, it, it's um, it's it, it's like that, and my friends who are bestsellers have have also like struggled with the either like they their bestsellers, but they're they're one a, one thing I've started to hear coming out of New York that I think is hilarious is as people being wanting to make the distinction, it's a paperback bestseller. <laughs> right like which like how many ways are we all gonna find to like to like cut each other down right like like whatever um and um but yeah so you know it's a paperback bestseller or it's not as big of a bestseller as you wanted or the bestseller thrusts you into a very uncomfortable level of visibility which has happened to a few friends of mine right like um where suddenly you can you can become the kind of writer where people think they own you right and like a celebrity and it's it's disturbing.
0: Yeah, it's a lot to take on.
1: Yeah, and so I—I I literally don't know anybody who is like, I want this, and then got it, and thought, yeah, right. Like, so even if they're doing that, even if they're doing the like performance of um, confidence that we seem to be requiring of people these days, because um, and- there's a lot of stuff on social media about how you should just embrace self-promotion that I have complicated feelings about. Like I, I see what you mean. You have to do a certain amount of it. You can't ask people to believe in your work. If you don't at least nominally portray yourself as believing in your work. Um, I just think there are a lot of different ways to accomplish that. And not all of them are like tweeting about your, your book eight times a day. Right. Yeah.
0: It's so yeah. It's, it's really complicated. And especially right at this moment that you're in now where the book is out because emotionally, like I, I always liken it to like sending your kid off to school, like in kindergarten, it's like, you want to see it make friends. You want to. Yeah. See, you don't want them to get beat up at school. You know what I'm saying? And so I think emotionally it's understandable that somebody would be like, I'll tweet, I'll tweet, I'll tweet. Yeah, but then you totally. start, every time you do it, you die a little. You're like, <laughs> I feel like such a fucking asshole. I
1: know. And it's funny because like the love of doing social media promotion has come from the general economic collapse of the book industry, right? Like where it feels like it's the one thing that you can do that you can control is you can at least control the number of tweets you put out in a day and how many followers you have. Yeah, exactly. And your, your platform is the publishers Mm -hmm. obnoxiously got us to say. (laughs) And, um, and so that's like a thing it feels like you can control. Um, but for example, like, I I don't know how many people are actually buying books off of Twitter, right? Like, I I don't know. It's possible there's a lot of them and it's possible that it works for different books, right? I
0: don't, I don't believe any of that shit. I believe it's word of mouth.
1: Yeah, I do think so, too. Like, I think um, it, it depends somewhat on, like, slow burn, too, right? Like, um, like a lot of books come out and get, like, a lot of yelling at the beginning, and then no one ever reads them again. I, I you know, um, I just, it, it's sort of like, a, to, to not use illiterate, so that I don't trash anybody, but to not use, it's sort of like Avatar, right? Like, there are a lot of books that are like Avatar now, where, like, they come out, and everybody, like, reads them and talks about them or whatever, and then... Uh, there's nothing there, so they have no trend. It Is was that like the
0: James Cameron movie, you mean? Yes, yes, I, I with saw the that, blue people. I saw that in 3D, and I was like, I got nauseous. And was like, yeah.
1: yeah, well, and can you remember anything about it? No. no.
0: But I can't remember anything about most things.
1: It. <laughs> 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 yeah, it's just like you watch... So, so, I, yeah, I'm much more comfortable with the movie analogies. You watch E.T., you don't forget E.T., right? Like, you, you remember what happened in it, right? But, um, but yeah, with, with something like Avatar, you don't. And there are a lot of books, literary books, I mean. And, obviously, it's on a smaller cultural scale. But I think the same thing happens where like it comes out, everybody insists it's the next, like it's the biggest thing ever. You spend weeks hearing about it and then everybody reads it and thinks that
0: right, 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 <laughs> and never reads it again. Well, yeah. So I, I guess like in addition to word of like I think word of mouth is the most trusted yeah. uh, and it's the most positive signal yeah, for yeah, a, yeah. A, both a book's success and its longevity. Yeah. But there's also, I think you can, a book can be a curiosity because it's controversial. And then I also see sometimes books that um, uh, there is for whatever reason, uh, like kind of an ubiquity to them where yeah. everywhere you turn online, it's like, Oh, there it is again. There it yeah, is again. Yeah. And I think if, if the volume is high enough, sometimes people can be convinced to buy a book based on that. Like, well, if everybody's talking about it, then right. maybe there's something here. I got to check it out.
1: Right. It's just, it's so, it's so weird. Cause like there's a whole universe of books out there that like Literary people don't talk about. I mean, and I don't just mean like right wing Bill O'Reilly thrillers, although that's definitely one wing that we don't talk about um
0: god i love killing lincoln i'm joking
1: (laughs) i mean there's a controversy right now about a pundit's book that you maybe have seen like it's called the opposite of hate i won't say her name but but like the point is mostly it's been interesting to me to watch this book because i think it's selling very well and it's certainly getting a lot of promotion and then on social media people are complaining about it constantly and i won't get into the, the the but they have various complaints about it right um and um and it's interesting because I've, I feel like I'm watching that social media stuff not penetrate, and it goes to show you that like writers spend too much time online, <laughs> yeah. and place too much importance on Twitter. So do journalists. That's a whole other like ball of wax. Right. Um, but like you know, they spend too much time online by the nature of their jobs, and then they think it's the only thing that really exists.
0: And it's also a fucking dopamine addiction. It is really. It I is mean, especially if really. you I start. Have it. I, yeah. Yeah. Me no too. No judgment
1: of people. I have it too.
0: Well, yeah. I have it, but I like to me um the lure isn't as strong just cuz i don't have that many followers mm-hmm. like these people who have like hundreds of thousands of followers and get all this reciprocity for every damn thing they say i know like that's a powerful drug i it would is. be i would be like wow i'm going to i'm going to tell you about my breakfast like if, if <laughs> i'm going to have 600 of you like fave it. like that's I feel like that would be hard to resist.
1: Although if you're not like Instagram bland, do you know what I mean? Like a person who just posts like really heavily edited selfies and stuff like that. You get a lot of blowback for the things you say to you on social media. I'm so sure. It's just like, it's a really fraught thing. And I've always been like, both I have the dopamine thing of like wanting more followers and also feeling like I, I have a decent level of visibility. That's enough. Yeah. You're right.
0: Well, so let me talk to you about yeah. this because I feel like this is sort of tied to the concerns of your book yeah. is that the environment that we live in now digitally yeah. with the uh, Twitter and mm-hmm. with like Goodreads mm-hmm. and Amazon, mm-hmm. like everybody, like the doors of criticism are, are open wider in some senses than they ever have been. Mm-hmm. And everybody can sort of chime in. And I feel like Twitter, um, is primarily a forum for complaint and criticism. <laughs> People kind of like kvetching and like airing their grievances, including my, you know, I do it too. Yeah. And I, maybe it's like, so it's like reinforces because everyone's doing it and you start to join the chorus. And then I feel like, I don't know, to me, I have very complicated feelings. I have this fantasy that after this Trump thing is over with, I'm just going to (laughs) leave. I'm going to end it. I'm going to live pure without it. I don't know if that'll happen, but I feel like there's something detrimental to like uh, the deepest part of me when I spend too much time engaging with that stuff.
1: Oh yeah, totally. I'm gearing up for a break. I'm just waiting for the book to come out in the UK and to to last long enough that That's my publisher does not. That's what UK they
0: all say. That's not. what they all say,
1: Michelle. Oh <laughs> uh, really? Yeah. Like, well, I actually think I I really am going to do it for a variety of reasons. But um, but yeah, I um. I'm gearing up for a break. I think I, but what I'm, what I would say is I'll be back. I'm definitely, I don't think that this is going to be permanent for me. I'm not going to become one of those people who's just not on social media. And I'm gearing up for a break just from Twitter, which I feel like has just become. Well, so like, it's funny, a lot of people have asked me like, oh, isn't Twitter like a lively place for criticism? And wouldn't Dorothy Parker have a great Twitter feed? Of course, she would have a great Twitter feed. Um, This was her specialty. Um, The issue is mostly um, like Twitter encourages a lot of like rote arguing. Like I, I don't I don't often like read an argument on Twitter and think, oh, people are making interesting and novel points that I've never seen before. So the the thing that Twitter sometimes brings to me that I do find insightful is the occasional personal story about something that's in the news, like usually... Like I was reading actually a story from a, a young woman in Virginia who was talking about how her boyfriend got pulled over for giving fifty cents to like a guy outside of a Seven Eleven. Right. And he's black and he's terrified. I and read she, that. She, yeah, yeah, and that was really interesting, right? Like, and that contributed something to a discussion to me. But, um, but other than that, that occasional thing, like I don't find like the arguments about police brutality that go on Twitter teaching me anything. Um. I I feel like argument, um, that is deep and, and, um, and significant and and life-changing does not, just doesn't go on at the length that Twitter goes on and it doesn't go on in this way.
0: And it doesn't happen that fast.
1: I know it's fast. It's also like, it's, it's weird because there is like, I I don't, I don't want to sound like a certain recent Harper's article author, but like, and and I don't agree with her on any on any real point, including that I don't think she had ever been on Twitter. Um, Is but, this Kitty Roy Yeah, yeah.
0: Is that am I pronouncing that right? I you already... are pronouncing okay. it right.
1: Yeah, and and I think like. Well, a major problem with her critique is she had no idea what it's the chaotic experience of actually being online is, and so to her, it just looks like she she keeps she kept saying it, it's a mob. I don't think it's a mob on there, but I think there is a lot of clustering and stuff that goes on, and it's mostly because, to be honest, these are tools for people who are bored at work or procrastinating, right? Like Twitter can say whatever it wants, or but, or know.
0: I would add to that, there there is I think uh, a function for people who don't have a forum or a platform otherwise it's true to find each other that
1: stuff has been great and but that stuff was true about the internet prior to the existence of social media right like that's the that's the one thing that i would say is like i get that twitter accelerated certain voices um trust me those were i've been on the internet since 1994 those were around before Mm -hmm. right um and uh and it was possible to find each other and actually have like really deep nuanced conversations and i actually think deeper connections than it's possible to forge on twitter So, um, so yeah, so like there, there is that, but a lot of it is because I've found myself in this situation where some argument is going on on Twitter and I start retweeting like things I nominally agree with. And then I think like, what, what am I doing? Right? Like, you know, I don't have a deep engagement with this topic. My hitting retweet is not a deep engagement with this topic. Um, and, um, and yeah, like I can see how it just sort of happens, right. Mm. That you, that you end up in these clusters and or mobs, but you have no actually real commitment to what you're doing, which is a really weird way for everybody to have any kind of meaningful argument, yeah. right. Is for yeah. everybody to be half participating when they're bored, like, um, or watching TV at the same time or something like that.
0: And I'm also just struck by the toxicity of it. Yeah. Like if I'm reading anger or if I'm reading about stories of injustice, which are important to acknowledge yeah. and engage with, but, like, man, you can walk away and just you're agitated for reasons that you can't quite explain, and suddenly it, re-man- it manifests itself in other parts of your life, and yeah. you're like, you know, I gotta watch my intake, just as, no, just I, as I would with, like, a sleeve of Oreos or something, you know? Like, this stuff can be bad for you.
1: I know. I have started telling myself it's poison. And actually, like, in, in preparation for gearing down, I stopped reading my feed much. Hmm. Like, I only... I, I will maybe read the top three or four tweets. And then, like, I put a picture of my cats or some book news or something.
0: <laughs> Nothing like a good cat picture Yeah, to, yeah, like, it's alleviate. true. Well,
1: people like my cats, right? Like, so... Um, no, people... I do yeah. I
0: do the Daily Twiggy, like, the, my do dog, yeah. for the same reason. Because I'm like, okay. Like, yeah. there's enough garbage out there. Here's some... Like, everybody loves a puppy photo.
1: Exactly. And, like, I don't know. We live in such... A, we live in a moment where people need the friggin' kitten and puppy photos. It's fine.
0: So, you talked about rote argument in the context yeah. of Twitter. And I... Um, I want to make sure I, I talk to you a bit about this because I think the women that you're pro, you know you're writing about in your book, um, you know all succeeded at criticism, yeah. uh, you know and and succeeded um, artistically and as writers in ways that you find admirable, even if you don't necessarily right. agree with everything they wrote yeah. or whatever. Uh, what makes for a good critic? What makes for a good argument? Like, do you have a succinct answer to that? Is there something you look for in a piece of criticism that you know you can you can look at it and if you see it you know it's there and if it's not there you you also know that
1: it's an interesting mind that that's usually what i say right like in that um it's really easy to for anybody to write the the you know the like this book is really bad take or this book is really good take some people see that goodness and badness in a different way, right? Like, which is, I would say, yes, is also true of all the women in this book. Like, even where I wouldn't necessarily agree with them in the result. It's interesting to read both Joan Diddy and Mary McCarthy, Pan, Franny, and Zoe. And, and like, I like Franny and Zoe okay. I'm not sure I'm a big Salinger person, but, like, sure. I like it okay. And... um, But I want to read their Pan because I want to see what they think about it. Yeah. Um And there are like that is vanishingly rare even among critics right um
0: yeah what makes for an interesting mind like yeah. is it just somebody who's read a ton who's just like gifted intellectually like you know like
1: i think I, yeah it sounds horrible but i think it is gifted intellectually a lot of the time right I'm like, like i, I yeah. want
0: an i want an interesting mind I yeah really make well my mind more also, interesting. often
1: like when there's an experiential element to an interesting mind in general like i you know um I, I, I'm I not going to say this is true of every person, say, who's born into a literary family, but, like, I, I often find that the people who are writing criticism that I most find interesting did not come from that background, right? Like, did not sort of, like, rise up through the ranks of whatever. Um, like, Parle Sagel is a great critic, um, and, like, she talks about having to steal books out of her parents' like study because they didn't really want them to be reading so many novels um she and her sister and and you know um
0: they kind of got they got there on of their own yeah and uh, they
1: had to make their own way there and like without patting myself on the back too much like i also had to make my own way there and i had to like yeah i did it through very eclectic reading but it it means that like you know, I didn't I, I think there's a tendency in criticism in particular to rely on pedigree a lot. Right. Like, um, did this person like work for the New York Review of Books? Did the person work for the New Yorker? And um, that's opening up now. Um, but in the past, that's been, that's been the focus. You mean,
0: you mean the range of accepted venues or backgrounds is opening up? Okay.
1: Yeah. I do think it is opening up. Um, some of that is just like the, uh, what could broadly be termed the online revolution. But, but like, um, but I also think like literary circles for better or for worse are opening up somewhat. Um, well, not really for worse at all, but, um, they, it's. It's funny because there's still this perception of an establishment in New York, which is not the way that people in New York feel about their position in the culture and society. And that's always been like the the sort of the sort of like strife of it because... Some of the people who are identified as like the literary establishment in New York are making $3,000 a book and thinking like, what the fuck are you talking about? <laughs> right? <laughs> right. Like, right? Like, how <laughs> on earth am I, like, I'm not in charge of anything, right? Um, and I can see what their, what their issue is. Um, but, um, You know, it's opening up um, and uh, and criticism is opening up. And I think we've gotten a lot more criticism or more interesting criticism from having these other perspectives, because one of the things that will make your mind interesting is a little bit of opposition.
0: Mm. Like Like reading things that you don't agree with or receiving pushback from receiving readers receiving
1: pushback like from readers from editors frankly from from like in a way i think the literary world is always going to need to have an establishment like we can open it up we can make it have other ha- have other people but there's something there there like you need the friction in the first place in order to be a better writer like it just it, it is what it is right like um it would be great if it was just a case that we could like genetically test people for like talent and then and then go with it but it seems like it has to be a little more than that right well and
0: it's also like sometimes um maybe not a village but especially i think like a pair yeah uh not enough is said about the vital role that a good editor can play. I think yeah. maybe especially for work of like critical work yeah. where you have somebody who can really volley with you intellectually or push mm-hmm. back or see your blind spots. Mm-hmm. I mean, I guess there are some people who can, you know, just put something down and, and right. you know, press publish. But, uh, God, I if I, if I were writing something in that vein, I would be starving for somebody to come in and just poke holes in it
1: yeah yeah i know and uh, that kind of editing doesn't really exist anymore at nearly any venue i think i can think of i mean i've had some good editors but um unfortunately the the situation now is so dire um resource wise that people even editors who would be inclined to do that just simply don't have time do
0: you have friends (laughs) i mean you know what i'm saying do you you have trusted trusted people you're like okay
1: yeah and i can i can do that too um it's it's funny. I I sort of like left off writing so much criticism because I, I got interested in narrative work for a while. But like um, but yeah, like I it, those things are all like important, and it's important to have like yes, like a community of writers who can sit and talk to you about things. Mm. I don't know. I think like more interesting minds is something in general like contemporary literature could use a lot of. Um, right. Like I read a lot of like um novels that I think are really beautifully written, but like I wish there had been more thinking at the core. Um, and I don't mean exactly the thing that is often discussed in literary, in literary circles is like making your characters ciphers for ideas. It's more that like you will formulate your characters more carefully, the more you're thinking about the core of the book.
0: And you can feel it as a, yeah. re- you can feel it as a reader.
1: Yeah. You can feel it when somebody has been like kind of more focused on the language than anything else. Right. right? Or
0: just like the, just the raw action of it or, yeah, you know, exactly it's I love, a, I love a, uh, a piece of fiction that really feels undergirded by like deep thought and like some sort of uh central idea or, or set of ideas. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I tend to be very um somebody said this about me on Twitter recently and I was like, oh, yeah, you're right. They they said she's she, you know, she's suspicious of style, she doesn't trust it. Um and it's true, I am, right? Me, me too. Yeah. I like I I and and I say this as someone who who was, you know, sort of bottle-fed on Mike, Michael Ondaatje, but my my students um or but when I was a high school student, um I definitely like fell in love with him and fell in love with lyrical fiction, right? Um uh it just seemed to me that the core was also well thought out too, right? The core matched the beauty of the language. And I feel like I'm reading too many books where that isn't the case. But then, and if I'm honest, the kind of book I would prefer to read that isn't perfect is the kind of book that like Donna Tart writes. It's funny. So Donna Tart, uh, like the goldfinch, I know everybody acts like it was perfect or whatever, but I often heard the complaint and I think Francine prose. I'm pretty sure it was Francine Prose wrote this in the New York Review of Books. Like, she wrote a takedown of it being like, you know, there's bad sentences in it. There's certain parts of it or whatever. And I I understood what she was saying, right? Like, it's definitely there are places in which it gets a little bit casual and sloppy. I would rather have that with the big core of, like, what Donna Tartt is wrestling with in her books. I'd rather rather have that. Um, I
0: read the whole thing. See, this is how how, um, primitive my critical mind is. Yeah. I, I finished the goldfinch. it is therefore good, yeah like if I, if I get <laughs> Actually, through, it... it's
1: not a bad standard, it's not a bad standard, honestly. I mean,
0: and it's like a five hundred page novel or six hundred page novel, like the fact that I finished that book and like read every page, yeah, it's a good book,
1: yeah, no, no, it's true and and like there's a real denigration right now going on of plot and character that I don't really understand, um, and it's sort of being left to like um genre still like it's funny because i would have told you the same thing five years ago and i'd think it would have turned over by now um because what's happening is sometimes literary novelists write a genre novel and then you can see that they're not committed at the core they're mostly hoping for a movie option and it's like <laughs> it's fine it's fine i want you to have the money right like right. i mean you know you're a good novelist and i want you to have the money but i can see that this project was just like mm. Uh, I wanted to try writing science fiction and see if I could get science fiction money.
0: Right. (laughs) Right. Yeah. (laughs) Want some lasers. Let's let's add some lasers. Exactly.
1: Some apocalypse. That'd be good. Um, when I, I'm not sure it was like, it was something they had something they really wanted to say about.
0: Yeah. the apocalypse well i mean yeah it's interesting because you uh, are out here in hollywood now Yeah. like you've made the leap as many of your uh, <laughs> predecessors did i think i'm, I'm of... trying
1: to make the leap that, that's where i am I'm at, I'm at the moment where i'm trying to make the leap i'm trying to get more work in television
0: yeah because that there's money there's actual money to be made in there's television money. Uh,
1: uh, there's money and also like for a long time i've been wanting to move into like more narrative work and more fiction because i've found the work of trying to construct story um Interesting and intellectually interesting, um, and I, I like I I will always write criticism I think, but like um, it's one of these things where if you do it a lot, eventually like it just starts to feel like okay, you know, time for the next act. Yeah. Um. But yeah, so I've been out here, like, sort of meeting with people and stuff. It's been interesting. Um, it's Everybody
0: been... loves you. Like, I love you. <laughs> I love your voice. I know.
1: Actually, I do. I do love that as a contrast from New York publishing, right? Like, because in New York publishing, it's a little bit genteel right um and so people don't express enthusiasm even if they feel it right like um which is totally fine um it's just like out here everybody loves you yeah
0: but you don't know if they mean it no you don't know if they they mean it but it still (laughs) it still feels
1: like dipping myself in a warm bath of self-love right like um and i don't think i take it particularly seriously when they say that like i don't think i wake up thinking like oh That producer really did love me. I think they said it. um, And I think, you know, I'll have some sense of how I acquitted myself in some meeting or other. But, you know, TV is also an interesting medium right now. It's going through the thing that journalism went through 10 years ago, where, like, a bunch of VC money, tech money has come and poured itself into it, being like, you could be the next big thing. And that means there's a lot of experimentation going on. And I guess, like... I'm chasing experimentation.
0: Sure. And there's also more, there's more places to make television than ever before. Yes. I mean, it's wide open. That's also. I think that's good and bad. Like, I guess the question that always presents itself to me is like, who's watching all this? (laughs) Where's the audience going to be for 7,000 TV shows? Well, I
1: think the idea is that if you have a, a thousand pinpricks, like that, you will get, you will pull in enough audience to, to, constitute the aggregate right for
0: like a netflix subscriber base you mean
1: yeah i think that's that's at least the theory and you know i went through this in journalism and i say that mostly because i fear it's the same bubble right um like it's it's going to be the same thing where eventually tech is going to get bored the difference in with in them investing in hollywood is there may be this infinite resource of wanting to know hollywood stars right like that that journalism could not provide them with this kind of glamor, <laughs> um, about? uh, that, that might keep it going a little bit longer here. Right. Um, cause there's just something, there's something so romantic about being involved in like a movie or a television show that, that it um, plays
0: well at cocktail parties. It like, does. It's, it's, it does. It's, and it's and a good it's, story to tell.
1: It's something that feels like it has the potential to last beyond you. Um, in a way that, yeah, like frankly, journalism doesn't. So, um, but yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot going on. There seems to be, you know, I'm I met like I've met several people recently who have had shows greenlit at like YouTube and Facebook, sure. which are completely unproven.
0: Apple's doing one with, yeah, like, you know. Do, Apple's
1: a- doing a bunch, yeah, yeah,
0: they're yeah. getting into the content game.
1: Yeah, exactly. Um, and it's interesting. It's an interesting time for a writer because I also do think like every literary writer, not every. I'm sure there will be somebody who will tweet that snarkily. Um, Not every literary writer, but a lot of them want to do this now or want to come out here mostly. Yes, it's money. Um, It's also like there's something about being in a a field that has some energy about itself or some optimism uh, that is nice after like many years of, I mean, my research says that publishing has been down on itself roughly since 1910. So, 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 like, you know, you know,
0: <laughs> it's been a long slump.
1: Yeah. It's been, it's been constantly convinced that it's going to collapse. Right. Like, so I, I never know how much stock to put into the current concern because, like, it does seem like the ebook, the threat of ebooks has kind of bottomed out because people, oh, that's, I I, I'm people not are worried about that at anymore. Phones too much. So they, they want hard copy. But, um, but yeah, it's, it's really, um, it's nice to be somewhere where the energy is sort of positive, even if some of that positivity is bullshit. Right. At a certain point, you'll take the placebo effect. Yeah. Right. Like, (laughs) um, if, if that's, if that's what it is, then fine.
0: And also just, I think there's something nice, especially if you've been working, uh, in isolation for a long time or, you know, relative isolation on a a book or journalism or whatever it is to be in a interactive collaborative environment or to have that possibility on your horizon. Like that. Like when I was out doing the rounds for TV stuff, it was always like, oh, that sounds fun. <laughs> Being in a room with like funny people and like sit in, you know, like and have like a team and you're going to make a thing. And mm-hmm. that still appeals to me because I feel like sometimes the, you know, it can get lonely when you're just like with your computer and especially when things aren't going well or the, you know, you're struggling with a particular section yeah. of a book or.
1: It's lonely and it also feels like you run out of material because your material eventually is I'm a writer trapped in a room. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I I don't know what you're talking about. (laughs) (laughs) And I can't get out. Um, Yeah, I mean, I think it's Matt Weiner who talks about that a lot, right? Like about how his theory is that like, yeah, um, uh, TV writing is for people who can't stand the loneliness of writing. And I'm definitely sort of that person. Like I'm definitely more social. For years I've been feeding that with reporting. Um, But reporting is such a weird like sort of transaction relationship with people um whereas this yeah it does it does sort of like oh you get to be around other writers you get to have like a genuine connection with them that sounds kind of nice um and you get free lunch right which will bring writers running every time right
0: it's not like a water bottle yeah, and exactly sparkling water I know
1: they have like actual <laughs> money yeah yeah i know
0: well uh i'm so pleased to get a chance to meet you congratulations thank on you. your book best of luck with all of your hollywood adventures and i hope we cross paths again
1: thank you so much <laughs>
0: All right, guys, there you go. That's Michelle Dean. Her book is called Sharp, The Women Who Made an Art of Having an Opinion. It's available now from Grove Press. Sharp, The Women Who Made an Art of Having an Opinion. Go get your copy. Michelle is online. She's published all over the place, so you can read her online in a variety of publications. I'm not seeing an official website, though I I could be missing it. She's on Twitter, at Michelle Dean, but when I try to go there, it says that the page doesn't exist. So, maybe there's some sort of glitch, or maybe she's on some sort of social media fast. Maybe she said to hell with it all and she deleted her account. I don't know. I think she's on Facebook too, but I didn't go there because I deleted Facebook. So, just try to track her down. She's out there. Michelle Dean, and the book one more time is called Sharp. Go get your copy. Thanks to Kill Rock Stars for the music, uh, the band Stereo Total for the theme song music, thanks to Cigarette Royalty for the interstitial music. If you would like to write to me, the address is letters at otherppl.com. If you want to support the show, it's patreon.com slash otherpplpod. Don't forget this podcast has its own app. It's free. It's the official Other People app. Go get it wherever you get your apps. It's free. And, you know, the more that I think about it, the more that I really do feel that it would be nice as human beings for us to have some sort of internationally recognized symbol for like i just don't want to talk right now no offense just don't have it in me don't want to hurt your feelings but just hand on stomach it's not that you're making me nauseous <laughs> i just i don't have i don't have the ability right now to be conversational or I don't remember your name, I'm embarrassed about it, let's just avoid this. So, I don't know, I'm going to try to get over it, I'm not, going to, I'm not going to hold on to it. I needed to share it here, I got it out of my system, I'm just going to move on with my life. If that's the way it has to be, that's the way it has to be. It's the way life goes sometimes. If you ever see me, and you don't want to talk to me, just put your hand on your stomach.